your hour of drive time begins with your host, Jay Mamie, on the Jay Mamie Talk Show. Good day, everyone, and welcome once again to the Jay Mamie Talk Show. This is Jay Mamie, and I'm excited that you're joining us today for your hour of drive time. I want to welcome those of you that are listening to the show for the very first time. We are having an explosion of listeners that are joining our show for the very first time. And I got to tell you something, folks, that does my heart so good to know that the word is spreading about the show. And more and more people are tuning in, not only to uh, one of our stations, not only to our podcast, but to all of our syndicated shows that are running around the country right now. And we're excited about that. And we're thankful that you are joining us for the very first time. I believe you're going to find this is a worthwhile investment of an hour of your time every week. So whatever station you're listening to the show from, whatever time frame that you are picking up the show at, make sure that you make it a weekly part of your schedule so that you don't miss out on the thrive-minded content that we're delivering week after week after week. And for those of you that are visiting our show, that are revisiting our show, rather, thank you again for coming back. And we encourage you to continue to do that as we are inching closer every week to our 100th episode. And that's going to be a fantastic anniversary style of a show that we're going to have coming up in a few weeks. But today's show is going to be awesome simply because we are delivering again today valuable content that is actionable. It's implementable. You know, there's tons of shows out there that are fantastic shows with great content. But the the minute you turn off the show or you kind of go on to some other activity, you find that a lot of that content that was was just heard or watched, it's never applied. It doesn't become actionable at the very moment that you tune out. Well, this show today, just like all of our other shows, folks, gives you an opportunity to take away action-stoking, thought-provoking words that you can implement immediately so you can change your life. Well, our first guest coming up in our next segment is Brian Bogert. Brian Bogert is one of the hottest guys right now in the space of human performance. And he's got such a great message that he's going to share with us. He's coming up after the, after our break. And we also have our returning uh, guru for mergers and acquisitions. We, I get a lot of folks asking me questions about this guy because he's so knowledgeable. Jack Carney, the, the co-founder and director of Dumas Capital, one of our national sponsors, is going to finish off the three-part series that he's been providing us teaching the world of mergers and acquisitions. So we've got a jam-packed show today. I want you to buckle up. If you've got something to take good notes with, now's the time to go get it because we're launching the Thrive Hour right after the break. Tired of the corporate grind? Have you ever considered owning your own business? This is Irving Chung. I'm the founder and CEO of Fran Guidance, and I can help you take your financial future into your own hands. There's a proven and profitable franchise business in nearly every category and budget. Contact me today for a free consultation at franguidance.com. That's F-R-A-N-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com or call 214-908-9791. Are you struggling getting qualified leads from your sales prospecting efforts? Aptivio is the world's first all-in-one AI platform for sales pipeline growth. It detects hidden revenue opportunities and leads most likely to convert. It never gets old to watch our clients experience aha moments when they discover hidden revenue opportunities 
product or setting up their go-to-market playbook in less than 30 minutes. Give it a try at aptive.io forward slash sign up. Friends, this is Jay Mamie, and I'm thrilled to announce that our merchandise site is now open for business just in time for the holidays. My inspirational quotes, encouragement words, and thought-provoking phrases can be printed on a number of very cool items to help you stay in thriving mode. Make sure to visit my website, thejmamie.com. Look for the store link. Check out the items. Once again, that'll be at thejmamie.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Jay Maybe Talk Show. About to have a fantastic conversation with someone that I've been looking forward to having on the show, not only because of the value that he brings, but quite frankly, when someone's statement, someone's mission, someone's vision is to impact a billion lives by 2045, you know you've got to bring that person on the show, especially when the show is about thriving. So on the line right now, I'm excited to have Brian Bolger. Brian is not only a human behavior and performance coach, but he's a speaker, he's a business strategist, and he teaches disruptive strategies on how to create sustainable growth and lasting change, not only personally, but also professionally. And what I like about him is his philosophies, his philosophies on how to embrace pain to avoid suffering, people before profits, and I like that one, and who before what, those philosophies have helped thousands of people and hundreds of companies to really activate their limitless potential. So I'm excited to start diving deep into the mindset of Brian Bogart. Brian Bogart, welcome to the JVM Talk Show, brother. And it is a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey, we're going to have a great conversation. We're going to really deliver value for our listeners. But before we dive into all the goodness that you're doing, and you're doing a bunch, man, uh, I'd like for you, though, to first get our our listeners up, up to to speed with a little bit of your story because you've got an interesting story starting from young and all of the different dynamics that has happened in your life but if you can get us up to speed on that i'd appreciate it yeah so let's just start at the beginning and i know we got a really short hard-hitting episode with this one so i'm going to just jump right to it i literally when i was seven years old august 10th 1992 115 degree day at 6 10 p.m was at a walmart getting a one-inch paintbrush with my mom and my brother Mm-hmm. When we were approaching our car to head home, turned my head, saw a truck barreling 40 miles an hour right at me with no time to react. He went up and over the median, up and over the tree in the median, hit our car, knocked me over, ran over me diagonally, tearing my spleen, leaving mm-hmm. a tire tracks around my stomach and continuing on to sever my left arm completely from my body. Now, my mom and brother watched the whole thing happen. They look up, they see my arm laying across the parking lot 10 feet away. And fortunately, fortunately for me, so did my guardian angel. Mm-hmm. See, there was a nurse that walked out of the store right when this took place. And she saw the literal life and limb scenario in front of her. And Jay, I am forever indebted to this woman for choosing to go into action versus turning her head and going on with her day. Mm-hmm. If it was not for this woman, I either wouldn't be here today or I would not be here today or I'd be here today with the cleaned up stump. That's just the reality. of it. Mm-hmm. So what I know definitively, and we'll keep this short and sweet, is that, yes, I have a unique story. And yes, I'm sure that the majority of your listeners were not expecting it to go there today. But what I've also realized is that every single one of us has a unique story. What's important is that we pause and become aware of the lessons we can extract from those stories and become intentional with how we apply them in our lives. And we all have the ability to do that. And we also all have the ability to tap into the collective wisdom of other people's stories to shorten our own curve to learning. And so 
it's a lot of these situations in life that contributed to some core concepts, which was embracing pain to avoid suffering. I learned very early not to get stuck by the things that happened to me, but instead get moved by what I could do with them. And I learned that moved people move people. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what's propelling our mission to impact a billion lives, because I'm a believer that if everybody is in a position to raise their level of awareness and intentionality and get back to the core of who they are, their most authentic selves, that's when joy, freedom, and fulfillment exist holistically in our lives. And that's when we start to create a world where people can stand on their own two feet, not only confident, but convicted in who they are, knowing that the world will not just accept them, but will embrace them for exactly who they are. Brother, man, that's what I'm doing today, because that's how I can ensure to leave a better world for my kids and my grandkids. Well, I'll tell you what, you, you, you're another testimonial of how you can turn tragedy into triumph, right? I mean, it could have, uh, at a young age, to go through that trauma, it, it, I'm sure it has its effects, and I want to chat a little bit about that as well, but you've been able to turn that tragedy into a triumph, a uh, story of triumph that is helping and will continue to affect a lot of people. And I love what you said, brother, move people, move people. I like that. And that's a mic drop. So I'm going to label that as a, in fact, that's not a mic drop, Ryan. See, when you give a mic drop is one thing, but our, on our show, if it gets to the next level, it's a knowledge bomb. So you just dropped the knowledge bomb, brother. And I love that. Uh, well, thank you. Let me ask you this. So early on, and I've heard your story and, and I'm, some of the questions that came to me as I was listening to your story was you, you had a lot of treatment that you experienced early on, number of hospitals, number of surgeries. Oh, yeah. And you were a young guy, you're like nine or 10 years old right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Going through this incredible, you know, journey in life. At what point, whether it's at that age or maybe a little bit older, at what point did you realize, hey, I'm going to turn this, this tragedy, this, this, what most people would feel sorry for. Uh, at what point did you realize I've got a story to tell? I can take this and convert it into a lesson to help, uh, help others. When did that happen? So, I would tell you that it's happened in different phases in how I was going to deploy the lesson to help other people, but it happened for the first time almost immediately, to be perfectly honest. You know, I was seven when this happened, mm -hmm. and I remember laying in that bed feeling sorry for myself. Mm -hmm. At seven years old, I remember the thought processes and the feelings going through my body and my mind that were suggesting, man, what is life going to look like like this? Like, why me? Why did this happen? This is so traumatic. What is, what's going to happen in my life? And I was feeling really sorry for myself. And then we'd have families in the ICU that we were in starting to come around us saying, we're so sorry for what happened. To you. Man, we're so sorry. This is so traumatic. We can't even believe it. What can we do to help? And then we'd ask more questions and we'd come to find out that their kid would be laying in the hospital bed next to me, not knowing if they'd live because of the terminal illness that they have for another 30 days or not. Mm -hmm. And so from seven on, I decided that at least at a minimum, what I could do was provide perspective, motivation, and direction to those that were around me, recognizing that that moment, although I didn't know if I'd ever have successful use of my left arm, I knew I would have my life. Mm. So perspective points us at what's important. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those moments very early that, like I said, I learned early on to not get stuck by what had happened to me and instead get moved by what I could do with it. I would tell you for the next five to seven years after that, I really focused on how do I use my story to help the organization that gave so much to me? Phoenix Children's Hospital. How do I build philanthropic efforts? How do I help other patients really identify with the elements of their story so they can tell their story effectively to benefit the good? Because what I would do is I would tell my stories at fundraisers and I'd go meet with donors because nobody have heard a story like mine in most cases. 
Mm-hmm. And so because there was so much shock and awe because of my story, I was immediately put on stages, telethons and Children's Miracle Network stuff to be able to try to raise money because of what was happening so that world-class care could exist for other kids. It was probably 14 or 15 that then that got put into a really formal structure. And it wasn't well into my late 20s before I decided that I could do this as a profession and that I could extract a lot of the lessons, not just from my personal life, but from my business life and scaling our $15 million business over the course of 10 years and other things that we've done in the philanthropic space for nonprofits that we genuinely could use our stories, our lessons to shorten the curve to learning for other people. You know, you bring up a good point because, and that's, that actually is the next question I was going to ask you. You decided at a certain point to convert a personal story into a professional one. And I've had other incredible guests on the show who've had similar tragedies occur in their lives, physical tragedies. Uh, Amberly Lago comes to mind and, and, and Colonel Gregory Gatson, incredible story. Uh, we've had a number of folks who've been on the show who have had their own personal tragedies, but they've turned them into a professional story. For a listener who is listening to the show right now and, and has gone through some stuff, and maybe it's not a physical tragedy, maybe it's an emotional tragedy, or it could be some other kind of financial tragedy tragedy at what point should a personal story become a professional story so you know i'm not really a big believer in distinguishing between the two a whole lot because we Mm -hmm. live one life and i'm not Mm -hmm. a believer in work-life balance because i'm a big believer in work-life integration Mm -hmm. i think that we can extract stories of meaning and lessons that come from those and become intentional in applying in our lives whether they are generated from a personal situation or a business one The reality of it is we are human beings and we all live this universal human experience. We all experience pain. We all experience disappointment. We all experience loss. We all experience grieving. We all experience scarcity, anxiety, perfectionism, control. Like in some respect, we all are subject to all of these dynamics. Mm -hmm. And we all in any capacity, whether it's personal or professional, interact with other people, other humans who also have their own unique human experience. And so for me, What's interesting to the question is I'm a big believer that if you have something to share, my purpose in life is to allow my truth to give others permission to live theirs, regardless Mm -hmm. of what category that fits in. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, what's really fascinating is there was a very big distinction in those worlds for a long time. So though I just answered your question that way, I want to be really clear here. I got so much attention because of my personal story for so long early in life. I never wanted professional credibility or to be known because of my harm ever Mm -hmm. which is why I steered completely away from it as a business because I wanted to prove to myself that's really what it was more than anything but also prove to the world which really was proving it to myself that I could establish myself in a credible way be a known credible solid business person build and scale businesses lead people have significant philanthropic effort independent of my art because I didn't want to be defined by it. After I had established all of those things, then I focused on how do I integrate my personal story along with what I now know on the thing that was completely independent of my personal story. And so for me, it's been about a beautiful marrying of my personal and professional struggles, challenges, lessons, integrations and successes holistically in my life at this point, because I'm not a believer that there is balance. There's only integration. And I appreciate that answer because I think a lot of people think that they have to live two separate lives, right? That they have to live a professional one and a personal one. 
but there is there is something to be said about having having found the balance to be able to 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 share a story that is one and the same your personal and your professional could be one and the same and it could really impact the lives of so many once you've come to the agreement that one can be the same but i've heard you talk about fear in our last couple of minutes here and we'll pick it up on the other side if we have to you had a challenge with fear in fact you mentioned that your wife was the one that called you out um, when it was time to to kind of get to the next level you were living with this what i would call an undiagnosed fear so before we wrap up the segment here what's the subtle difference because i believe you lived it we all live i've lived it. but what's the subtle difference between operating under personal risk management and living with undiagnosed fear what's the difference the subtle difference <laughs> we'll pick it up after the break if we need to <laughs> no i mean i really like that so uh the distinguishing factor between personal risk management and fear i think it is a very very fine line personal risk management is not exposing yourself to catastrophe it's not setting yourself up based on some instinct or belief that you can do something it's about balancing and regulating with external factors, uh, limitations that actually exist around financial resources or skill sets or abilities. I'm a big believer that personal risk management is about making an educated decision based mm -hmm. on the variables you have access to with as much awareness and intentionality as possible. Mm. Fear is fabricated. Fear is often pointing us towards areas that we might need to close a gap in ourselves. Undiagnosed fear, I have really deeply appreciated, but I think that fear is fabricated more often than not. And more often than not, it gives us feedback and it hones our focus if we're paying attention to what it's telling us. And so in my personal situation, and I don't know that we have the time to do it in this particular segment, we may pick it up after this, Mm -hmm. But my wife challenged me in an area because she'd never seen me operate under fear. Mm -hmm. She believed that my actions were being changed, limited, and confined based on a fear that I didn't even see or understand was there. But once it was brought into my level of awareness, I shifted to personal risk management to be able to assess what were the sources of that fear. And oh, by the way, if I'm in alignment with where she's pushing me, which I was, then I had to gather the information to make an educated decision based on my timing and risk tolerance for how I wanted to make the change that she was suggesting I make. Does that answer the question? It, it does. And his was interesting about that. What's interesting is it's always someone that uh, always someone that causes us to recognize that we're not living in what we think is personal risk management. They call us out and say, no, brother, you're living in fear. Because it's uh, it's subtle, it's underneath our noses, it's undiagnosed. Someone else got has to call it out, and it's good that you have, uh, you've got your wife that calls it out. My wife has done the same thing for me, and uh, it's helpful to have that. But you're right. We're going to pick this up after the break because I've got another doozy question to ask you about <laughs> fear, and and then we're going to dive into something that you often talk about is this feeling of. Uh, what uh, emotional triggers and, and how critical yeah. these emotional triggers are. You speak a lot about that and sometimes having a sense of or feeling of unworthiness. Lots to unwrap here. Folks, we're going to pick it up right after the break.
In today's digital world, consumers expect to buy from your business on their phones. Union takes care of that for you in just 15 minutes. Offer online and mobile shopping and the most advanced loyal customer loyalty program available today at no cost to you. Your customers will pay less. You will make more money and more money stays local where it belongs. Jointheunion.com. Get started now at jointheunion.com. That's join the Y-O-U-N-I-O-N.com. So you built a successful business, now what? Transform your successful business into a valuable business. That's where Dumont Capital Partners comes in. We've built a step-by-step -step process designed to drive up your business's value and give you back control over your time. Whether you want to sell for a premium or just know that you could, Dumont Capital Partners will give you the life and business you deserve. Contact us at valuebuilderus.com. That's valuebuilderus.com. Are your sales lagging? Are you frustrated with your ability to effectively communicate the goodness of your product or service? Could your income greatly benefit from you getting better at selling? Hi, this is Jay Mamie, the host of the Jay Mamie Talk Show and the curator of the Thrive Sales Mastery Course. I want you to know that there are answers on how you can get better at the skill of selling. Go to my course, the Thrive Sales Mastery Course. Get the answers you need so you can experience the results you want. Thrive Sales Mastery. Welcome back, everyone, to the Jay Manning Talk Show. Having a phenomenal conversation, diving deep into the good stuff right now with Brian Bogert, having a conversation about undiagnosed fear. We're going to pick up a little bit uh, on that as well. But before we dive into it, actually circle back to that question, uh, I want to extend the question, Brian, and because and fear is something that a lot of people struggle with. Uh, with and oftentimes it is diagnosed, undiagnosed, and sometimes people do, do realize they're struggling with something that is really just false and it has to be addressed. But with regards to fear itself, in your opinion, what's worse? What's a worse fear uh, for someone to experience? Either the fear of feeling fearful, the fear of trying and going after your dreams. Um, really what you know you were called to do, having a fear of going for what you were called to do, or, or the third fear, the fear that one day <laughs> you'll have to answer to yourself why you didn't even try at all. What's the worst fear for someone to experience? Well, I think it's a beautiful question. And I think that it's the answer to the question is dependent on the time with which they are experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Right. Each one of those fears that you outlined really hits a different element of progression through fear. Right. And what, at least in how I heard it. So the three things you articulated, you've got the fear of what it's going to look like to actually have to answer the ultimate question to yourself at the end of the day with what you did or didn't do. Right. Mm -hmm. Put that into the bucket mm -hmm. of regret. Right. We have All the right. fear of actually choosing to embrace the pain to lean into whatever's required to chase our passion and our purpose so that we avoid the suffering of not ever knowing, right? And then mm -hmm. the last fear that you outlined, and I'm, I'm gonna probably butcher this one because it was the first one you said, and I'm trying to make sure I remember it so I can answer the question appropriately, but it was really the fear of fear itself. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. The fear of feeling okay. fearful. And so I think that if we look at things in terms of impact, and the quickly, how quickly we can progress through them and mitigate the other emotions around it. The one that's tied to regret, we feel 
the most and the hardest, but we typically don't experience it until we're at the end of our lives and we cannot do anything else about it. What's fascinating about that is I actually put that into the bucket of suffering, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to admit that suffering exists, particularly when it's a direct result of our choices. Mm -hmm. But the unavoidable precursor to change is acceptance. So until we accept the current state of things, we cannot alter them. We cannot influence them. And what we know, and Bezos popularized, is that regret minimization theory suggests that those people on their deathbeds regret far greater the things that they never tried mm -hmm. than the things they tried and failed. That's right. And so I think that that is hands down the greatest payment that we pay when uh, that is the cost of fear. The second fear which was the one you outlined. And that's the one I said is the one that we have to embrace the pains of all the things that are required to chase our passion. That is one that is difficult. But what we start to realize through that element of fear is that most of it's fabricated on the front end. And again, it, feed, it gives us feedback and hones our focus. So if we choose to lean into fear and not allow it to confine or dictate our actions, then what we start to recognize is what Dr. Susan Jeffers outlines as the ultimate baseline of fear is the answer to the question, can I handle it? The reality of it is, is by having a fear and choosing to see it, understand it, feel it, and do the actions anyway, we experience a significant amount of relief, not only from suffering, but that's also where we get to experience joy, freedom, and fulfillment, because we get to literally experience the other side of fear, which I've said to my kids for a long time, all the greatest things in life are on the inside of fear, fun, freedom, and fulfillment. Mm -hmm. It's often those few seconds of discomfort we have to move forward. And Doc and Brene Brown outlines that oftentimes that fear, if we actually faced it head on, lasts for about eight seconds. Really? So it's really not that complicated. Once we made the decision to act, we will experience the negative impacts of that discomfort, that difficult decision to move forward, typically for only about eight seconds. Fear of fear itself feels the most scary feels the most impactful. And it literally is what helps people not make progress and move in their worlds and remain stuck. And so I believe that the middle one might seem the most scary because of all the risk that potentially could be associated with it. But I think that the opportunity cost of either having fear, the fear of fear itself, or the fear of having to pay the debt someday to yourself because of what you did or didn't do, far outweigh whatever discomfort or pain of the fear of when we actually move through it. So I think it's a spectrum, brother. I don't think it's a simple answer. You know, and you're absolutely right. It's, I think it's the, the answer will determine on who the person is, their temperament and the timing. Because exactly. one answer, right? It, what I fear today is not what I feared 20 years ago uh, in terms of what I perceive as something fearful. And I'm, I'm sure 20 years from now, it'll be very different from what, I'm, what I have concerns about today. But I, I want to challenge you with a question here that, that I think a lot of people struggle with. I know I'm in that camp, and, and I heard you speak about uh, feeling, having these, these feelings of, at times, unworthiness. And, mm -hmm. and it's a struggle, right? I mean, I, I've been in situations where I've knocked it out of the park, and all of a sudden, when you're alone, you just feel like you, you question whether or not you deserve the good that's happening to you. And, yeah. and you struggle with self, and you've spoken about this, you struggle with self-worth and accepting that, hey, there's something right now in my life that's actually pretty good. You just had a big win. But then when you get alone, that nagging sense of feeling unworthy, it, it slowly tries to drag you back to that unworthiness cave, right? And, and we've yeah. all been there. Yeah. How do you tackle that? How have you tackled it? And how could you encourage someone else to do the same? 
Yeah, so it's a great, great question. And uh, I'm going to try to hit this at the highest level because obviously this is, not, uh, this is not an easy answer and it looks different for each person. Um, you know, I, I have been impacted by self-worth, but self-worth is really a byproduct of shame for me. And it's only part of the narrative. You know, again, I'll credit Brene Brown. She helped me understand that there's two sides to shame. It's you're not worthy, you're not good enough. And I'd be lying if I didn't have moments that I existed there. And I'd also be lying if I told you that I didn't wake up many days with imposter syndrome or still feeling like, why the hell does anybody want to listen to me? Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is, is that's not where I've had my predominant narrative. It's when I've shut that down, I've showed up in the arena and I've gone to battle. It's who do you think you are? See, so many major things I've done in my life, I felt the need to apologize for because the bigger I lived, I perceived that it was making others feel small. And it was also one of those things that I never wanted to create that hierarchy or separation. So I would pull the throttle back in my life. But this was one of the first major emotions that I had to actually unpack and understand that it actually was impacting my life. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of the last seven to 10 years, we've developed this process called the inside out method to help with any core emotion and individuals who might be able to be triggered by it. Because what we know is that people aren't stuck because of the wrong strategy and tactics in their life. They're stuck because of a combination of emotional triggers, behavioral patterns, and environmental conditioning. Mm -hmm. the emotional trigger is the tip of that spear, right? Because you can reverse engineer behavioral patterns, environmental conditioning, if you understand the trigger, but you can't always go back the other way. And I'm a big believer that we can either allow our emotional triggers to pull us, causing us to react and create damage, or we can pull the trigger on our emotional triggers, which will allow us to respond, never having the need to create repair from any potential damage, intentional or unintentional. And so one of the things that we help people understand is this framework, it's the inside out method. And there's really four steps. I'm gonna hit this at the top of the top level because we again are short on time, but ultimately we have to become aware first that this emotion has impacted our lives. It might've impacted people around our lives. It might've held us back in our businesses, our, our professions, our relationships, our health in some capacity, right? Second, mm -hmm. we have to then own it. Ownership is owning that, yep, there has been an impact. Yes, it has actually negatively impacted me. And oh, by the way, the other side of ownership is that most of the time, if we react because of our trigger, we create damage, then that also means that part of ownership is we have to repair. So I'll give you an example. My wife often would used to ask me a question, which would be simple. Hey, babe, what are we gonna do with the kids this weekend? And my shame filter would cause me to hear that implying that I haven't been a good enough husband and father. And so my shame would kick in. I'd get defensive. I'd puff my chest and I'd rattle off the 10 things in the prior four days that I've done to be a good husband and father, even though that wasn't at all what she asked. And so what I've now done is I put my wife on the defense. I've created a little bit of damage. That's the opportunity where my reaction has created damage for me to create repair. That's part of ownership. Because not only do I have to own that it's impacted my life, but where I've created damage intentionally or unintentionally, I have to create repair so that I can diffuse and neutralize the negative energy in those relationships and that I can then move forward. The next two steps are where it gets really hairy. And I'm going to move really quick on this again. Third step is on root. We have to get to the root or root source or sources of these emotions. Because until we actually can go through the process of understanding where it came from, it's very difficult to start to identify how it moves in our world, how it moves through us and how we move through it. And so what I mean by this is my friend, have you ever pulled weeds ever in your life? Uh, no. Well, that's a beautiful thing because I hate pulling weeds and I've done it. But no, I'll tell you, no, what there's no weeds on concrete when you live in Manhattan. There's no weeds in concrete. It's, well, see, there you go. It's beautiful. <laughs> okay. And so, but right, many of us who live in the suburb in the suburbs, right? We've got weeds that grow up through the concrete. So many people have lawns, they see weeds in the middle. And instead of going and pulling them in the lawn, they're like, well, if I just mow over it, right, it'll be green, it'll blend into the lawn, and then we just move on. The issue is is most of the time when we weed, whether we're trying to pull it out or not, they break off at the top and the root remains. The roots yes, continue to yes. grow. The weeds keep growing back. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's no different than our emotions. If we continue to mow over them by cutting them off, acting like they don't exist, showing up with a smile on and showing up with a, you know, to move fast through life, because that's what we're taught is don't feel. What I'm trying to tell everybody is you need to feel in order to heal. So -hmm. what we actually have to do is go to the full root of making sure that we get that entire root out. And that there's an empty hole left in the ground. What we do with that empty hole is we start to fill it with new thoughts, new behaviors, new feelings, new emotions, new patterns. But we have to get to the root of root so that we can do that. Now I have a couple of roots for my shame. I've dealt with anger at a deep level. I've had to unroot that pretty effectively because until you understand where it started, you can't actually start to understand the patterns and the environments that it will impact. Lastly, it's move. We have to understand how it moves through our body, how it moves through our world, and how do we move through it. Now, what do I mean by how does it move through our body? I just told you what happened in one case with my shame. When my wife would ask me that, it would cause me to get defensive and elevate. Well, I talk fast and I also have a loud voice. I can't tell you how many times in corporate meetings, someone's leaned over, put their hand on my shoulder. I'm like, shh, you can't talk that fast. You can't talk that loud, which would immediately cause me to shrink down. Opposite effect from the reaction of my wife. Both cases are shame moving through my body, but because they show up differently, it might be hard to identify. Now I have five or six different ways that shame moves through my body. It's important for me to understand those things because then I can understand how how it moves through my world. And what I mean by that is what's triggering me? How am I getting triggered and how is it moving through my body? Because if I don't know how it moves through my body, when I get triggered, I might not be aware in that moment that it's even happening. I have over 50 different ways that I get triggered from shame and I have five or six different ways that it moves in my body. I've got to be able to map those to see them so that I can raise my level of awareness real time so that I can be intentional in those moments so I can pause, take a breath, challenge whether or not I'm reacting to what's in front of me or how my grandpa looked at me when I was four. Mm -hmm. Because the reality of it is the way I choose to move through that next situation is determining whether or not I react and create damage or I respond and can move forward with less effort. And so any emotion, people can actually bring these to a place of conscious awareness so they no longer have to be confined by them, stuck by them, or that these emotions will be used negatively by other people in the influencer space to drive them to become dependent on their programs. Instead, they can flip it on their head and actually know how to use these things effectively to move through their world. Brian, I want to, in our last minute here, because we have a lot of folks that are thrive-minded individuals, they're thrive-intentional people. They're on this show. They appreciate the show because they want to get to the next level. And emotional triggers is such a huge topic. You've identified some of yours. You said there's there's 40 or 50. I think I I heard you say that you have. I think most people don't, don't don't even recognize what emotional triggers are in themselves. What would you say to someone uh, as, as something as uh, who's thrive-minded? How critical is it for them to immediately begin to recognize their emotional triggers if they plan on thriving to any, to any successful degree? I think that it is one of the most critical things for any high-performing individual who desires to grow in business and life or in profession to understand the things that you're triggered by mm-hmm. and how they affect you and how they move through your world. I That's think right. that this is one of the singular greatest places that people can spend time and energy focusing on. Because think about it, if you get triggered and you're a leader of a business and you get triggered by one of your associates, you get triggered by one of your clients and you don't even understand that it's happening, you will react in those moments and ruin that relationship, right? How many times did you get triggered by a spouse walking into your office and all of a sudden you carry that energy in and you go and lead a staff meeting and they all feel this toxicity from you. They don't know where it's coming from. They don't know what it is but it's being transferred through the world in a way that has a ripple effect that creates negative impact into people's worlds. It is one of the singular greatest things that we all as individuals and entrepreneurs and thrive-minded individuals can invest in is to raise our level of understanding around where our triggers are and how do we actually move through them. 
And here's the thing, brother, if we as business owners also understand where all of our associates triggers are, if we as men and leaders of families understand where our spouses triggers are, our kids triggers are, we actually then can become the protectors and connectors in every one of those mm -hmm. environments versus being contributing to the negative separation that causes us to feel isolated, alone, and unworthy. Our triggers are the greatest source of contributing to negative experiences in this world. Brian, there's so much more that we can continue to talk about, especially with emotional triggers, and one of them being, how do you prepare effective response management? Because there's one thing to be triggered through some emotional uh, event, right, that you can go off the rails, but how do you then, once those emotional triggers are recognized, how do you create the self-discipline for to have an effective personal uh, response management to it once you go off the rails? That's a conversation we're going to pick up once again. Uh, when, when I have you back, we're going to have you back because it's just too much goodness here for us not to tap into. But I appreciate your time, brother. Uh, I'm thankful for it. And I know the folks can track you down at brianbogert.com. And anywhere else they can track you down, we're going to put it up on our website. I appreciate you, brother. And we're going to have you back soon. Man, thank you for building the platform to give me the opportunity to serve the world and serve you and serve your people. That's what it's all about. So I'd love to come back, brother, and continue where we left off. Folks, we're going to be right back after the break. Are you having a hard time finding commercial funding? Is this challenge stalling your business goals and dreams? At JRF Financial, we specialize in getting your commercial funding and challenges resolved because we work with the largest SBA lender in the country. We work with over 33 different types of alternative lending and can fund anything from equipment to real estate. So don't let funding challenges stop you. Call JRF Financial at 844-484-6248 or visit us at jrffinancial.org. Have you gotten behind on your personal or payroll taxes due to COVID-19? I'm Adam Cohen, Tax Resolution Manager at Jack Lauderman CPA. The collection arm of the IRS has resumed enforcement action. You may have received demand letters threatening liens or levies. Our firm specializes in resolving complex tax problems. There are options available. Go to txcpaoffice.com and schedule a free, no-obligation consultation. That's txcpaoffice.com. Are your sales lagging? Are you frustrated with your ability to effectively communicate the goodness of your product or service? Could your income greatly benefit from you getting better at selling? Hi, this is Jay Mamie, the host of the Jay Mamie Talk Show and the curator of the Thrive Sales Mastery Course. I want you to know that there are answers on how you can get better at the skill of selling. Go to my course, the Thrive Sales Mastery Course. Get the answers you need so you can experience the results you want. Thrive Sales Mastery. Welcome back, everyone, to the Jay Mamie Talk Show. In our final segment today, I couldn't think of a better way to close out the show right after having Brian Boger talk about emotional triggers and, and the things that cause us to, to have concern about growing our businesses, growing professionally, and also personally, those fears that we have to be mindful of. Well, I know that when you are a business owner and you're going through a process of a merger, or maybe you're, you're acquiring a business, there could be a level of fear, of uncertainty that creeps up naturally, and that can cause you to hit the pause button on a decision that could benefit you and your team and your company and others and your family. That's why I'm so excited to have back for our third installment 
the co-founder and director of Dumas Capital Partners, Jack Carney, to continue to educate us on how do we successfully go through a merger and acquisition process. And we're going to wrap up our three-part series today with some powerful questions that, that Jack is going to answer, not only from our listeners, but also areas of concern that a business owner would have in terms of questions that should be answered. And Jack is back today to help us with that. Jack, welcome back to the Jay Mamie Talk Show. Hey, Jay. It's wonderful to be back. Thanks for uh, getting me involved again. Jack, we're going to pick up a little bit of where we left off. We've been having a really a, a great conversation that has been providing a layered approach to understanding this whole process of a, of a merger and acquisition. Today, we're going to get into the final stage of that, which is the buy-side merger and acquisition process. I know that there are certain questions that need to be answered while this process is happening, both from the buyer side and the seller side. And if you can help us clarify what those questions that should be answered are, I'm sure it's going to help a lot of our listeners out there. That would be great. Love to. What questions should be answered? If you're in this process, what are some of those questions that should be answered? Well, when we're representing companies on the buy side, and of course, I don't want to use investment banking lingo, we're representing the buyer, and that's that's why we refer to it as buy side mergers and acquisitions. We go through a series of questions with our clients or even prospective clients. The first really is, give us an idea of the transactions that you're looking at. We classify transactions in two ways. One is, is opportunistic or is it systematic? And let me explain the difference briefly. When someone you have known or over the years comes to you and says, you know, Jay, I'd like to sell my business. Would you like to buy it? That's an opportunistic situation. You weren't searching for an acquisition. You weren't systematically looking for acquisitions. Someone you knew or someone who somehow identified you comes to you and says, would you consider, or would you like to buy my business? And so again, that's opportunistic. I refer to that as, you know, the fish jumps into the boat. Uh, mm -hmm. And the other way we work with clients is systematically, where they have identified ways in which they would like to grow their business. And perhaps it's a geographic expansion. They're in a particular city right now. They're in Philadelphia, uh, and they'd like to expand to southern New Jersey. And so they're looking for acquisition candidates in southern New Jersey with whom they might do an acquisition. And so that's a systematic approach. You probably have a strategy uh, that you put in place. We also ask our, cl our clients, is your business ready for an acquisition? The good news, bad news of acquisitions is that you may be very happy the closing day, but if you're not prepared to fully integrate the acquisition, you not only may not realize the benefits you had anticipated for the acquisition, it could actually jeopardize your company. And so we ask our clients, have you ever successfully acquired and integrated an acquisition before? Uh, if they have, that gives us a basis for perhaps doing more frequent or even larger acquisition transactions. If they've never successfully acquired and integrated a company before uh, as a result of an acquisition, we need to move a little bit more slowly uh, and be much more careful and perhaps focus on slightly smaller transactions so that we don't risk the company. They, you know, my clients will often hear me say, you know, don't bet the farm on a transaction. Uh, you want to make sure that if the transaction does not in fact realize the uh, benefits you are proposing as part of the acquisition, 
make sure that doesn't cause your company to risk entering the zone of insolvency. And part of that is, do you have any dry powder? And we focus on two areas here, is organizationally, in terms of your management team, in terms of the skill sets that you need in order to continue to operate your business successfully and acquire and grow uh, an acquisition, do you have the bench strength? Do you have the people? And do they have the time? Do they have the resources to do this properly? Okay, that's part of, are you ready to do an acquisition? Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have any bench strength, if you don't have any talent to spare, uh, and you don't know the people or don't have the resources externally to help you acquire and integrate a company, you should be very, very cautious. The other is, do you have any dry powder financially? One of the things we always begin with when we do a buy side assignment with a client is we begin with evaluation. And several weeks ago, we talked about valuations. Mm -hmm. uh, and we will then go to financial sources. Typically, the first stop would be a senior lender, uh, a bank to see what kind of money they would work with us on in order to do an acquisition. So you've got to be ready. You've got to have some dry powder organizationally to do the acquisition, including the due diligence on the acquisition, and then the integration of the acquisition post-closing. And you've got to have some money. Uh, and if you don't have the money on your balance sheet, let's figure out uh, how much can you borrow, how much can you leverage with your, your commercial banking relationships uh, in a way that does not, in fact, put you at risk uh, in terms of uh, post post acquisition problems, so those are the basic questions, Jay, that we ask as we get started in a conversation with a client that is either approaching an opportunistic transaction or wants us to work with them over a sustained period of time in terms of a systematic acquisition expansion. Jack, those are fantastic questions, and I'm going to give you a few more because uh, as you're going through this, one of the things that I know that that me personally. Uh, it creates so much unknowns when you're going through uh, a merge and acquisition process. And here's one of those unknowns that you probably have had experience with. When you go through a, a merger, acquisition could be different, but certainly when you have a merger, how does that new arrangement, that new collaborative work between two companies, how does it affect the retaining of the best talent? You could have a merger, but along the way, you lose your best people. How do you what advice would you give to someone that is concerned about losing their best people in a merger? Well, then that's really one of uh, the most important questions that a, an acquirer can be asking, because in almost every case, uh, regardless of the kind of business, the key assets of the business go home at the end of the business day. Uh, and so retaining people is one of the most important priorities uh, we work on in any acquisition. A big part of that is figuring out whether or not there is a cultural fit. Uh, and there's never going to be an exact cultural fit because firms tend to uh, have a culture that's a function of the owners, okay? But there are a lot of assessment tools out there that we use uh, and consultants who specialize in company culture utilize in order to assess the culture of the acquirer in uh, the culture of the target company and figure out, can we in fact integrate the two cultures? Because if you can't, you should be very, very cautious about approaching the transaction. It, you know, a lot of these transactions may make sense financially, mm -hmm. um, but when you get down to the cultural fit, can we retain 
the people we want to retain? Can we motivate them? Can we integrate them into our organization uh, and make, a long, make them a long-term part of the success of our organization? That is one of the key things we need to do. And I would point out that when companies realize that they have executed a failed transaction, that the transaction has not realized the value they expected when they did the acquisition, one of the big reasons for that is a lack of cultural fit and a lack of planning on how to integrate the cultures post-closing. Speaking about integrating the cultures, what about integrating leadership? Have you found a situation where the processes of, of the, the merge and acquisition flows smoothly, but now you have a butting of heads in terms of two chiefs, no one wants to be the Indian. How do you address that? Sure, great. another great question, Jay. Frequently, we have to have, you know, what is the chemistry between the controlling persons? In many mm -hmm. cases, we have one individual or two individuals who control one company and one or two uh, who control the other company. And we have to sit down with them and make sure we question them and they understand uh, what their objectives are. Uh, if it's a situation where you have two CEOs who are both strong CEOs, but mm -hmm. one of them really his aspiration uh, is to retire in the next couple of years and the other may be younger or you know, more energetic, more enthused about the business who wants to stay. Um, you know, it's easy to give titles, chairman, CEO, CEO, COO, uh, that kind of creates the transition that, that one needs. Um, but in situations where you have people whose objectives, for example, if you have uh, two business owners and they both want to retire within the next two to three years, uh, what you have to figure out is what is the transition organizationally? Does either company have the people in-house to whom they could turn over the business in the next two to three years. And it might be someone who right now may not have the potential to be a president or a CEO, but in the next two to three years has the potential to learn and become the future president or CEO, or do you have to bring someone in from the outside? So it really is very much uh, a question of getting the key decision makers, the key leaders of the business together, understanding what they're trying to achieve, not just in a corporate sense, but what they're trying to achieve personally and see if you can then integrate those objectives to create a successful management transition. You know, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's about examining the chemistry between uh, those in charge, right? And if early on the chemistry is off, it, there is no doubt about it, it's going to create a, a cascade of problems uh, in short order. And the, the merger may go smoothly but the integration process could be horrendous. Um, and in the end, you're right, it ends up in fail. So I have a listener that asked three questions, Jack, in our last couple of minutes here, three questions that as I read them in my email, I thought to myself, here's someone that is obviously looking to position themselves in a way uh, to sell their business. Their first question was dealt with the length of time. How long does the process take on average, soup to nuts, and does that depend on a type of business that is being sold? Well, I can give a, a perspective. If they are selling, and, and in fact, you know, again, we would refer to that as a sell-side uh, merger process. I can give them some indications as to what it normally takes. And you know, there are 
obviously exceptions to the rule where it could take less time, uh, it could take more time. Uh, but we break a transaction down into three basic phases for analytical purposes. One is the preparation phase. And again, this is a sell-side uh, question. Is it typically will take us three to five weeks working with the owners to do the preparatory work to take the company to market? Uh, that time frame can be extended substantially if the company that wants to sell does not really have their financial accounting and financial reporting house in order. Okay. I'm involved in two sell side uh, situations right now. And in both cases, before we go to market, we're waiting for their accounting firm to issue reviews. Okay. And, and you've got compilations, you've got reviews, you've got audits. They're, they're different uh, reporting and opinion standards for CPA firms. So it could delay it uh, if we're waiting on something like that. Okay, but typically, if the company has their house in order, uh, it's going to take three to five weeks. The second phase is what we refer to as the marketing and negotiating phase. And normally, that is an eight to 12 week period of time. Okay. And that's where we are actually going out and soliciting companies to see if they would like to buy our client. And as I said, what will happen is we will go to a group of potential buyers ask them to submit indications of interest in which they submit non-binding letters. We try and narrow that down to a smaller group and invite that smaller group into due diligence, gain access to a document we prepared called a confidential information memorandum uh, and access to a virtual data room. Uh, and they will do due diligence. And a couple of weeks later, we'll ask them to come in and give us non-binding letters of intent and from the best offers we receive, we continue to negotiate those. We actually come up to a, a point where our client will sign a non-binding letter of intent and grant an exclusivity period to one potential buyer. Mm -hmm. And you work with a potential buyer on due diligence, on a definitive agreement. And that definitive agreement may not just be the company. It may be land that either the company or a family partnership owns. But again, going to the point where you can actually uh, negotiate all of that is an eight to 12 week process. And then the closing process will take five to eight weeks. Uh, so all total, it is typically up to a six month process. Uh, if everything, if everybody is being pretty efficient and everybody is doing what they need to do as part of this uh, transaction, it's typically a, a six month process. We've closed transactions in as little as four months. Uh, but again, it is typically four up to six month process to get to get the company sold. All right, Jack, well, we appreciate you being on the show, folks. That wraps up another fantastic show here. I want to encourage you to come back next week. We've got another action packed, thought provoking, action stoking show. Until then, keep thriving.